Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During the show, we give you access to these local experts who have information on COVID-19 and recommendations related to it. If you have a question for our guests, please email it to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. Good morning, and thank you for joining us for another episode of KMXT 100.1 FM's Lowdown. Joining me today are Mike Twangy, Megan Christensen, and Amy Corder from the EOC. How are you all doing this this fine morning? Very well. Thank you, Dylan. So to to cut into the chase, where do things stand right now where COVID-19 is? Can you just walk me through a little bit of how things are progressing and what you guys are seeing on, on your end? Well, I, I believe everybody knows that we're experiencing high case counts, high spread of the virus. Um, Yesterday we reported 124 cases active. So one thing that I, I, I wanted to ask really quickly, has there been any progress at tracking the vaccination rate among the new cases? Um, so you can get that information from the states. This is Amy from Providence. You can get that from the state's um, dashboards. That information gets compiled through the public health office um, for them to be able to um, discern that. What we from the medical community know is in terms of those seeking um, higher level of care, there's definitely a large percentage of those that are the unvaccinated. More than 90% of hospitalizations are coming from the non-vaccinated group with this. Um, those breakthrough cases, if they're happening, typically are asymptomatic and or able to manage at home, um, where the ones that need that higher level of care are coming from that unvaccinated group. Okay. So, Another sort of thing that I wanted to get into is that, you know, we're about two years on now into into the pandemic. I was wondering if you had any sort of predicted information for how the trajectory of COVID-19 would would work in this community, or is there just no way to know with the with the advent of the Delta variant? We know that the Delta variant is more transmissible than the original variants we were seeing. Um, and so we anticipate that it will spike. If you look, when you go to epidemiology and all of um, the people who have studied this their whole life, um, typically the second and third waves are worse than the first wave. So if you think of last year as the first wave, um, this year is kind of that second wave of cases. Um, as the virus mutates a little bit, it tends to become more transmissible. Um, and that's what we're seeing with the Delta variant right now. Um, the, the race and the unpredictable part of it is to try and stay ahead of that with the pharmaceutical things that we've come um, been able to develop as a country um, and as a world in terms of the vaccines. And they have, and I never say it right, but there is um, another medication you can get if you've been in close exposure that helps limit your um, symptoms and can help with that. That is becoming available in our community. Um, and so those type of things can help lessen um, the impacts that can happen from that and hopefully make those second and potentially third waves as it continues to come um, be less impactful in terms of mortality and those um, negative hospitalizations and long-term impacts. As a follow-up to that, do you have any sort of idea of when we might reach a, a peak for this, when we might finally start going down the hill as opposed to climbing up it because I, I do remember like last summer you know there's we'll we'll be at this point by july we'll be here by september etc cetera, etc cetera. i was just wondering if there was any sort of uh information like that perhaps from the state or even national outlook as to if there would be a, a month that we could expect things to to start cooling off a little based on the current doubling rate and things that we're seeing um and the current vaccine rates um, we anticipate this will continue to um, not peak 
until sometime probably in late October or November. Um, oh. So it's still going for quite a while. That is where doing the things we can to limit it now can curb those numbers. Um, but we know that fall tends to be a time that viruses spread. Um, if everyone thinks about the typical cold or the typical flu, those are typically things you think of fall and early winter. Um, and so this is a virus and that is the typical pattern of a virus. Um, so we anticipate that it will continue to grow for a little bit longer if we don't do mitigation, um, take personal responsibility for mitigation strategies. So let's talk a little bit about that. What 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 is what would be representative of personal responsibility for these mitigation strategies as it stands now in the second wave? How how do we prevent this from only reaching its extreme into October? Is it any different? It's not a whole lot different than it was before. Um, the big parts are the social distancing, the washing your hands, the knowing who your close contacts are, and being very transparent with them quickly. And then if you are a known close contact, being responsible of staying home, not just being like, oh, I tested negative that same day. I'm, gonna, I'm good to be out and about, um, knowing that it takes a few days for that virus to show up and build enough of a load. And so doing those um, pieces helps to do that. Um, vaccinations help to do that. If people are open to getting the vaccine, um, it is definitely one of the things we have this time that we didn't have a year ago. Right. So are there any sort of uh, changes to the risk level that'll be occurring on the on the part of the EOC? Are there any sort of uh, b behaviors or, or things that will begin to be um, pushed a little more strongly by the EOC that we can expect to see in the near future? Or? Dylan, as you mentioned, we're pushing two years, you know, here at the EOC, it's been 520 days total so far. Um, the community is well aware what those basic uh, protection measures are, social distancing, washing your hands, staying home if you're sick, avoid large crowds, especially with we have, when we have cases like we do today. Um, again, the makeup of the risk level is largely on the healthcare community, our EMS services, and our type of transmission rates. We're seeing a lot of uh, close contact cases right now. Those are clusters that are, um, you might say, isolated or those that are, you know, close contact of a previously reported case. So what we're, we're you know, that hasn't changed. What we're really monitoring is the um, unknown transmission and the community spread which we're not seeing a ton of that um, right now, but once someone gets sick, it spreads really fast. Like the Delta variant has a, has a transmission rate of maybe eight right now, where the other variant was closer to one and a half. Um, so it's very contagious and I hate to say it, but once it reaches into your household, um, the chances of becoming ill are high. So right now we're staying at, uh, that yellow uh, risk level with uh, recommendations for masks. Uh, we're talking to the Chamber of Commerce about our businesses, um, you know, asking patrons to wear masks when they come into the business. As you go around town, there's a lot of COVID fatigue going on. And is you know, some of the stores and restaurants, et cetera, there's not a lot of mask wearing. Uh, percentage is, is down from what you might expect at this time. So as a community, uh, we need to pull together like we did um, last summer and and try to get this virus in check. So I have a few listener questions that I can I can sort of just get out of the way in in one go. The when we last had a major outbreak of COVID-19, the EOC put in a mask mandate and made, made it rule essentially that you had to be uh, wearing masks in businesses. And what some of our listeners are, are asking us, and, and by the way, if, if there are folks who'd like to, to put in listener questions, you can do so now, the lowdown at kmxt.org or at 486 but, but but to continue on that point, a lot of listeners are asking, why not simply reinstitute uh, a procedure or policy like that 
in the face of the fact that that as you've just said this second wave will likely be worse than the one that came before it well mandates are uh you know directives and they sometimes need to be enforced right um enforcing a mask mandate around town at all of our businesses would be difficult at this time with the, the um just like i said with the COVID fatigue uh, symptom that we have um, we're asking the stores to voluntarily require masks, put up a put up a sign that says masks required voluntarily right now. Um, there's concern with the Chamber of Commerce members that, uh, you know, they don't want to turn away business because of those that don't want to wear a mask. But really, we need to think about our staff, our employees. Just look at what a store would be like if they didn't have healthy employees to serve. Um, we're we're going to close down, and that did occur in the last year. Some businesses had to close down for temporary because they didn't have enough staff. So, I would I would think people would respect one another and and put the mask on. It's just a short, brief moment in time that you're in a business and then you're out again. Um, and you might uh, stop one or two transmissions. So I, I to, to follow up on that, what, what I'm not completely clear on is, you know, if if you're running the risk of like businesses ceasing operations simply because their employees and operators are, are just too ill, why would that be um, more palatable than simply instituting a type of mask mandate again? I think the key word is the enforcement piece of it. Um, Is it going to be the city police department that enforces it with our other cases that we have around town? And putting a mask on is just not that difficult. I mean, that's that's something at this point in time um, we're quite used to. And you know, people need to respect one another's health. Um, voluntarily, a high recommendation is where we're at right now with the EOC. Okay. So one thing I wanted to ask about as well, and we were discussing this earlier, I just traveled out of town and now that I've come back, I've gotten a COVID-19 test before returning to work. Perhaps there are some uh, uh, listeners with a very keen ear who may realize that I too am actually phoning this in via via our our communications service at the radio station. So uh, we were we were talking a little bit earlier, and you said that there was actually a matrix by which the um, the health bodies were determining the priority of different test kits. Could could you go into that a little bit, please? So there's a lot more people seeking tests at this point, um, and there's uh, there becomes capacity issues. You can only run so many tests, do so many tests um, per day. And so the community health partners are all trying to prioritize and get everybody tested as quickly as feasible. Um, But anytime you get into a situation where there is more demand for the testing than capabilities of that, we um, as a medical community end up making decisions around how we prioritize where people come. And so um, people are, we're hearing people talk about, I just came back from travel and it took me two days to get an appointment. And we talked, a little bit about the fact that when we first started a year ago, travel was a very key indicator um, because there weren't cases on island. And so somebody coming in from off island was the risk of exposure. Um, at this point, we know that we have cases spreading here on island. And so when we go to prioritize someone who is symptomatic and sick and we're trying to figure out what's wrong with them compared to someone who traveled off island but has no other symptomology, um, when it becomes that issue of trying to pick which one we get in today and which one we get in tomorrow, um, the decision becomes the symptomatic sick person so that we can get them the right treatment um, as soon as possible. And so I know all of the community health partners are kind of doing that same type of decision process. I don't know all of the algorithms everyone uses for it, um, but that's why you might see a little bit of a delay in being able to get in for a test right now. Um, I know they're working really hard to get everybody in as quickly as possible and get them resulted as quickly as possible um, for people and asking that those who are waiting for tests and or waiting for your results continue to isolate just to help limit those exposures and risks um, in the community. It may well be too soon to know, but 
given that you you the EOC seems under the impression that th this is that we are just really beginning this second wave. Um, do are you under the impression that this backlog of testing might get worse? That maybe it will take longer to get an appointment. That maybe it'll take longer to get results. We know that nationwide that is happening, especially in larger metropolitan areas. Um, travelers that we have coming in at the hospital that are coming from other places um, are reporting that they would go to get a test um, at places that had a walk-in clinic two weeks ago, and now they're being told it's a week out. Um, Kodiak has a great supply um, of the testing kits. We've been phenomenal at that from the beginning of being ahead of that and anticipating it. Um, part of the island mentality, we want a bunch of stuff here because um, we know it might take a while to get stuff here. So we have a large stockpile at this point or a safe amount of testing availability still there. But if it continues um, to duplicate, that's hard to predict um, what those supply chains will look like. Last year was dedicated nationwide to building those supply chains um, and getting a network there so that we can maintain the right PPE, the right testing equipment, all of those things. And so hopefully all of that work um, will help us with this wave. So one thing I want to ask about as well was a bit a, a bit more on the 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 infectiousness rate of the Delta variant compared to original COVID. So I, I believe the metric that that um, that Mike just gave us was that the original variant was uh, uh, was a transmission rate of 1.5, and this transmission rate for the Delta variant was now at eight. Can you speak a little bit about to what that actually means? Because I think that a lot of people hear you know those numbers and they think, oh, you know, it's X times more transmissible. But how does that reflect out on the actual speed at which the virus spreads? Yeah. So it basically is kind of what you just said and what it sounds like. So the original variant we were seeing, um, if I were to have COVID, the likelihood is I would infect one or two um, people. And so you would see that doubling rate occur. So then those people could potentially impact one to two people. And if you keep multiplying that out, um, what we're seeing now in terms of the um, transmissibility rate of the Delta variant is that for every one person who gets it, they're likely to infect eight um, other individuals. And so that obviously replicates substantially faster. It is similar, um, I believe, from the infectious disease people. They are comparing it to like a chickenpox that once somebody gets it, it kind of runs everybody who hasn't um, done that, that it's pretty transmissible in there. So the likelihood is high that if you are exposed to somebody um, who had that, that you're likely to get it. And then, like I've said before, the best strategies is to try and do all the social distancing and those um, things to limit those risks. But especially in a shared household, it's hard to keep this one from transmitting. Okay, understood. Well, we have a huge rush of listener questions that I'm now going to pivot to here. So uh, uh, one thing that uh, one listener was curious about is how does the EOC's risk evaluation, I believe we're in the yellow zone now, compared to the state? Because there are different trackers, it's some more official, some less, that would put Kodiak into the, into the quote-unquote red zone for transmission, whereas we are presently in the yellow zone. Can you speak a little bit to that effect? Sure, I'd like to. Um, once again, it's the health of our island. Um, you know, certain states in the lower 48 are, are seeing huge outbreaks. Um, certain areas of the state of Alaska are seeing uh, enormous outbreaks. We're seeing them as well here. However, it's the, uh, it's the type of transmission that we're concerned about. Like I've been speaking for months, literally, um, is what keeps us in the, uh, in the risk level that we're at. Our healthcare um, has been able to uh, handle the caseload. Uh, our, our EMS service is transporting COVID patients, but nothing near the rate that they were last November and December um, or even this summer. So we're looking at our healthcare uh, professionals and seeing how they can manage the case uh, caseload. Um, we've been reporting uh, daily with the uh, EOC reports uh, of our COVID case counts, um, trying to be as transparent as possible. Right now, um, mostly what you're seeing out of the EOC is uh, transparency and information. So 
Um, we're looking at the health of our island in particular. We're not excited about the number of cases that we have, and we keep hoping that that will go down at some point. Um, uh, but once again, it's it's the unknown cases or the unreported transmission rates that are of bigger concern. And truthfully, our economy um, is, plays a part of this as well. Um, we suffered a economic downturn during the last COVID like all around the nation. And how much more can we handle here on Kodiak? Um, so uh, there's a lot of factors involved in the risk mitigation level. So uh, another another uh, listener question, is the EOC monitoring wastewater for COVID and are those results available to the public? We are monitoring uh, the COVID case counts uh, in our waste stream. Um, we've got the University of Alaska Anchorage Laboratory um, doing those reports weekly for us. Um, we see uh, the, the spike in uh, the waste stream that pretty much parallels our case counts. However, recently um, we're not detecting uh, the virus in our waste stream and we think it's something different with the Delta variant. Um, we've talked to the CDC about this and it may not pass through the body the way it does um, the, the A variant or the pre previous variant, but that's still yet to be determined. That's very, very interesting, and and certainly I'll I'll be following up with with you about that at a later date. That's a that's very, very, very interesting. Uh, another another listener question, and I've seen more than one of this one: Are the meetings of the EOC subject to the Open Meetings Act? You said the EOC. Yes. Uh, the answer is no to that. Is there any sort of? Uh, plan in place to make those meetings uh, public in any capacity or to have uh, uh, meeting notes made available or no? Not from the EOC. Okay. So moving on, the uh, another question that I, I've seen a bit of is did the EOC receive funding from FEMA for the pandemic response? And does that make the EOC responsible for the pandemic response in a, partic in a particular way relative to having received those funds? The EOC did not receive funding from FEMA. I mean, we, we have a source that indirectly provides uh, materials to the EOC that we transmit back out into the medical community. Um, our resources came from the State Emergency Operations Center. Okay. Um, another question I was interested in asking was what conditions were like at the local hospital in regards to, to treating COVID-19 patients and about the state hospital system more broadly. Um, if you are expecting that, you know, this is going to to this wave of cases we'll be pushing into October. What is that hospital system going to look like then? Um, so we are actively monitoring what case counts are here, what case counts are um, in, in and transfer abilities are at our transfer hospitals over in Anchorage. Um, we know that we will continue to see um, sick people. There are lots of sick people that don't have COVID as well right now. Um, and so trying to make sure that we have bed availability. So some of the things Providence here locally has pivoted on, um, we moved to Orange, um, which we haven't suspended all outpatient services, but it has transitioned what some of our outpatient services look like. So if you're getting a routine um, imaging study or routine lab done right now, we're not offering that on weekends. Um, it's Monday through Friday hours. Um, we are delaying um, non-urgent emergent surgeries at this time to allow staff to float to take care of the um, inpatient census that we have. Um, sneak peek of today's briefing, we do have five current hospitalizations up there. So we are managing um, by shifting staff around. Our goals are to be able to offer as much services as we safely can 
um, while still taking care of those who are the sickest. And so we're trying to prevent closure of outpatient operations, um, which we had to do last fall, um, where you couldn't come in for outpatient specialty clinic visits or outpatient um, therapy visits and some of those so that we could flex that staff into other capacities through the hospital. Um, so we have kind of a built up tiered approach for how we transition staff by limiting hours and changing things so that we can flex that in. Um, it's very similar to what they're doing at the larger hospital systems, um, but it's a communication back and forth about what um, those numbers look like. Nationwide, there is a shortage of medical staff. Medical professionals are getting burnt out um, two years into a pandemic, and so people are leaving um, the industry, and so there is shortages throughout the entire country. Um, so we're trying our best to keep our staff um, engaged and to give them the safety and flexibility that they need um, so that we're ready to take care of the patients as they come in. Is there any sort of set date on when the Anchorage hospital system will reach its capacity for ICU beds? That is hard to predict um, because it's not just COVID cases that we're seeing. Um, you get multi-car accidents that put five people in the ICU and we still have, it's still Alaska. There's still people out doing um, things and getting themselves injured or getting sick, um, you know, and so while we report our COVID numbers, that's not our hospital overall numbers. We still have a lot of other patients um, needing medical care. And so the goal is that we're able to take care of everybody, um, whatever the diagnosis is that they're coming with. And so helping to limit the spread on the outside of hospital um, helps keep us ready for if you need your appendix taken out. Right. Another question that I've gotten here from a listener is what was the justification for keeping Kodiak in the quote unquote green risk zone until we hit a point where we had 92 cases in a two week period? Well, the answer is still the same. It's we're looking at our transmission rates, the type of transmission and the healthcare community as well. Um, we, we saw an uptick um, in late July and uh, we found it time to, to increase awareness. Um, but like I've said earlier is um, we're several months into this pandemic and people should be taking precautions on their own, regardless of what the color of our community is. Um, I'd like to say what, what difference would red make right now to our community? I think I've asked that question before, would behavior change? Um, there's COVID fatigue out there and um, with red comes some, some stricter mandates, some occupancy rates, um, some closures, some mandates. So um, we're trying to avoid that if possible and, and inform the public through our information um, to, uh, to take the precautions that are necessary to slow this virus down. As a listener follow-up to that point, the, the listener asks, why would it be easier for businesses to enforce a, a voluntary mask requirement than it would be for them to enforce a mandated mask requirement? I don't know that there's really much difference. They could uh, they could enforce the mandate as a private business the way it is. Um, if it was mandatory, um, they wouldn't necessarily be doing all the enforcement themselves. It would be you know some sort of law enforcement I, I'd take. And you know we're not really in the business right now of saying you don't have your mask on. You've got to come with me. At the present moment, then, are you of the opinion that businesses should voluntarily enforce their own, relative to their own business, their own mask mandates for their patrons? Well, again, it's a private business and it's entirely up to them. I would like to see that occur. Yes, of course. And, and uh, if we all band together like we have in the past and bring our community together, um, not divided, we could probably slow this virus down. Um, you know, there was a time when masks were required in the major stores and you looked around and a, a non-mask wear was the anomaly, really. But now I think it's 
it's more divided. I, I personally see a lot of unmasked people and um, I'm not sure why that is with the, with this Delta variant being so transmissible. I mean, right now, I think personally that um, one sneeze could probably take out an aisle, you know? Right. That's, that's my thoughts. Another listener question that I, I've just received is to the effect of how, so you're getting on air right now and you're telling people that, you know, we need to take this very seriously. But I mean, if you've, if you've been listening to KMXT for a while, you've, you've been hearing this pitch uh, in from various different sources. Um, and, and you've either, resisted up until now those calls or you're one of the people who takes them seriously how is the eoc going to reach out to people who at the present perhaps um would be as you described those people who would be unwilling to follow a mandatory mask mandate and would and would remove their business from the from the local economy and so how do you get to those people who are who are resistant to to wearing masks who who don't take this seriously who might believe it's a hoax in in to in the order to prevent this spread from being really disastrous Dylan were you referring to the businesses themselves or the patrons uh, the, the the patrons well there's there's so many dynamics to this um, like I said earlier businesses were were having to shut down because their staff was unavailable due to illness or probably other reasons and so maybe your favorite store won't be there tomorrow for you your favorite restaurant won't be there when your family comes to visit um you know we we need to look at others instead of just ourselves in this case i'd like to see people take uh the awareness um on themselves and and protect one another i mean Really, this is a pandemic. We're not used to seeing pandemics in our lifetime. And uh, I think there's there's going to be some changes. Obviously, there's going to be changes. And, and we should be able to adapt to those as uncomfortable as they are. For instance, I've been wearing a mask for two weeks at work constantly. Um, that's not something I normally do. I'm doing it to protect myself and others in our in our workplace. And I think it's the right thing to do. Um, so to, as, as a follow-up to the question I asked earlier, does the EOC have any plans at present to, to do any sort of program that would raise the vaccination rate? I mean, some communities have done like giveaways, giving, I, I mean, I, I, perhaps we've all seen the, the headlines about different townships that, you know, we're giving away pots. Some are even giving away guns. I mean, so, some of them were like lottery systems, uh, but there, there, there were some programs like that to, to that effect. Is there anything of a similar nature to that being considered in Kodiak on the part of the EOC? I'll, I'll, I'll take this first part, Amy, and, Maybe you know something about the vaccination rate, but um, we, as Amy mentioned earlier, um, we have a lot of resources on the island, and we do have uh, we have had a, a good vaccination uh, stockpile, and we've had vaccination clinics. Uh, I think the EOC, with in partnership with Public Health and Providence, put on uh, five or six vaccination clinics. I know. Um, KIACC put on, Dr. Kohler put on vaccination clinics. Um, you can receive the vaccine at Canna and KCHC. I'm not sure what Providence is doing for the public, general public, but their staff has been able to vaccinate. So I think we've saturated a lot of the vaccination um, opportunities, but I'm not sure if there's still a real demand for that right now. So, um, the vaccination rate is pretty high in Kodiak, and I believe those who wanted the vaccine have received the vaccine. Um, so in order to give incentives, uh, we, we, we talked about it briefly because, like you said, other communities were doing that, but um, we don't have the resources right now to, to offer uh, for vaccine. The city um, of Kodiak and the 
Kodiak Island Borough uh, partnered with Kodiak Economic Development Corporation to to give money out to uh, businesses to um, just survive, I guess you'd say, um, get through some of the slowdown of the pandemic, but um, not in, not to individuals. There are a few groups uh, around that I have heard that gave cash incentives um, for, for vaccine, but not through the EOC. Is the EOC considered, say, I mean, you mentioned that it's, you know, a, a raffle or some such would be quite resource intensive. Has the EOC considered partnering with any local businesses to perhaps do some variety of promotion for, for people to get the vaccine? Or? Uh, we haven't discussed that. I will, I will go back to uh, early in the pandemic uh, that first summer when we raised awareness through that uh, bike uh, raffle or bike giveaway that we had. It was, it was called uh, the Banner Contest where um, children went around uh, to find all the, the remember banners, um, wash your hands, practice social distancing and wear a mask. Um, that was the only one that the EOC has done. Okay. Another listener question that I wanted to get to were whether or not the EOC would be returning to the weekly Thursday briefings. Well, there's been some talk about having those come back. Um, I know we did uh, 51 of those broadcasts and uh, wasn't sure. I was actually one doing the speaking. I wasn't sure how effective the listeners uh, uh, took that anymore. Um, if the listeners want that and we've got uh, really up-to-date information other than the, what we're putting out today through the EOC, uh, I'd welcome going back and, and uh giving those updates on Thursday. Well, to, to that effect, we definitely have had listener comments asking for, for those to return. Another another question, and um, I, I know that we spoke about this the last time you were on, were whether or not there was any, and granted from the state's numbers, it seems to indicate that, that it really is the Delta variant now, almost 100%. Do you have any solid numbers specific to the Kodiak Island Borough? for Delta versus other variants of COVID here locally, or is it, or are you just operating under the assumption that it's Delta? We're at this point, we're operating under the assumption that it's Delta. Most of what's coming back is still showing as the Delta variant. That is the more contagious of the variants. And so we just anticipate um, that most of them are, and it comes to a point that it, the variant doesn't matter as much um, as the diagnosis itself and making sure that we do the mitigation. Um, strategies. If we assume it's Delta and it's not, um, we're assuming it's the worst of the two. Right. Another question I wanted to bring up was the likelihood or possibility that we would eventually start getting booster shots, perhaps around the the, the winter season. Do you guys have any sort of uh, national or state level intelligence to that effect that you'd be willing to share? What, what can people sort of expect going forward? Should we expect to have booster shots in the next uh, year? So there's a lot of um, science going into the vaccines. I think going to your back to the question about how do you address the vaccine hesitancy, there is a lot of science and data that's coming out. Um, and it is one of the most transparent um, vaccine things in the medical community that we've seen um, compared to historic vaccine developments um, because everyone is sharing the information in real time as it's happening. Um, and so right now there is a recommendation um, that those who have had either a um, organ transplant or meet a level of an immunocompromise um, do get a booster shot um, because their body may not have been able to develop enough of the anti of an immune response to actually have gained the full level of immunity that a um, regular person receiving the vaccine dosages would have received. Um, the science right now is not indicating, it's showing that the vaccines are good for at least a year. Um, but I know there's a lot of political discussion about do we put an extra booster in just to make sure um, right now, the vaccine is still more than 80% effective, even with the Delta variant. We're not seeing increased hospitalizations with that. Um, so we continue to look to the CDC partners and um, through the pharmacy groups and the medication management, there's multiple organizations in there. 
um, that look to make those recommendations and determinations about if boosters are necessary. And they may be necessary at some point in the future. Um, I know politically there's a lot of push to go to a third booster shot um, earlier in this fall. Um, so the question really becomes what is the resource um, necessary for that comparative to the science behind it. And the CDC will help guide um, those decisions uh, based on all of the evidence that's out there. Would it be a like a, a different formula, so to speak, for the booster, or would it essentially be a, a third dose of the vaccine that so many of us have already received? There is, I believe, research happening with both um, things. So really, it depends on what um, be, is determined to be effective. Um, right now, I, my understanding is the booster for the immunocompromised is the same. It's just a third dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna um, vaccines that are out there um, is what they're recommending. And so it would be the same as what the first two were. Okay, understood. Can you, so so going forward in, into this virus, what do you guys think are the, what, what do you really want people to know as we're heading into like another month, another month and a half of this? How do we avert the worst? How do people make your job easier at this stage? How do, how do we make sure that this pandemic doesn't have like the, you know, the worst, the worst outcome, which we may or may not be heading for at this juncture? Well, as our uh, releases from the EOC state, uh, stay home if you feel ill. This virus spreads so easily that um, it's going to infect more people if you if you do have some symptoms. And, you know, it's easy to say, I need to go to work or I need to uh, go to the store or I need to do this. But uh, think of the health of others. And I'd like to say that, you know, with school opening right around the corner, this is a this is a crucial point for our community. <clears throat> Are we going to open up for in-person learning again or is it going to be remote? And, and then there's that trickle down effect uh, with daycare centers and staying home. And then, you know, someone can't go to work because they are staying home with their children uh, because school is is uh, remote learning. So. Um, I think that is a factor we all have to remember what that was like when we when we were remote learning and uh, the issues that that occurred that occurred through that I should say so um, you know stay home if you're if you're not feeling well please anybody else want to add to that I think yeah and there's a lot of people who are asymptomatic and spreading right now so this is a time to look at how large your social bubble is, um, support the local businesses, but consider taking the food home. Um, those type of things do help lessen that spread. If you think you may have been a contact of somebody, take that self-responsibility um, to kind of isolate for a little bit to make sure that you don't develop symptoms because um, you can be spreading a couple days before symptoms start. Um, if you have symptoms at all, we have seen um, multiple patients coming in asymptomatic, getting tested for other things um, that end up also having COVID. So, um, and then the other piece to that is we know that what is stressing um, the hospital capacity and the ability for you to be seen if you have a car accident and need to come in or something like that, um, if we're full of COVID cases, are those people who have not um, received a vaccine at this point? And so there's a lot of politics right now around the vaccine and um, whether or not people want to get them is a personal choice. Um, but the science definitely is behind that it is helping keep people minimally ill if um, not asymptomatic. Another thing I wanted to ask about, we're, we're running down our time here, but, but where do things stand with contact tracing? I, I know that those, that those systems were really struggling um, in the in the first outbreak, and, and given that you, you know this virus seems to be spreading so much more quickly, are are those how, how are those contact tracing systems handling it right now? This is Megan, and um, my sense is I, I as the PIO for the EOC, I don't have a really good 
handle on that. My sense is that much of it is happening um, off island. Um, I, I believe that those the Department of Health is doing a good job of contract contact tracing. However, the details are not readily available to us um, through the Kodiak Public Health Office because a lot of it just isn't happening on site here. Yeah, there is um, still some delay to it. Once you get a positive test, you get a letter from the state that encourages you to self-contact the people you may like sit down, think about who you've been around and please contact them to let them know um, because us informing each other is still faster uh, than them being able to call, get a hold of you, ask you all the questions and then get a hold of anyone and doing those um, steps. So really trying to be mindful and not being afraid to tell people that, hey, I just tested positive and I was around you at lunch yesterday without our masks and you may also be positive. And then if you get that news, being willing to isolate yourself will help slow the spread of this. So uh, another listener question, and I know that we've already touched on this, increasing the number of, it opens with a statement of opinion and then the question, increasing the number of vaccinated individuals is the only way to slow this. What is the EOC doing to accomplish this? I think the goal, at least from the medical communities in this, is to get the information out there. There's a lot of misinformation and um, debate around it. And truly, this is, in our experience in healthcare, one of the most transparent vaccine developments um, that has been there. And so there's a lot of, is this vaccine safe? It's still under an emergency use. Um, and really understanding where those emergency use things come from in terms of the data points that they have to analyze, they have an entire country submitting data to them um, and it's being transparently shared. So it's one of the most open and transparent vaccine processes we've seen. Um, and so, learning the science behind it and understanding where that came from, talking with your um, trusted medical professionals, so whoever your primary care provider is, um, or someone that you know that um, can help talk through that with you to understand um, where it's coming from. I know when you turn on media, social media, um, there's lots of debates back and forth about it, but when you're making that personal choice for you and your family, um, understanding the science and the decades of work that have gone into the development of the technology that's behind um, those vaccines um, hopefully can help ease some of those anxieties. Dylan, this okay. is, I'd like to I'd like to follow up on a couple of points. Please. So many of your listeners knew uh, continue to ask what is the EOC doing? Um, I'd like to clarify that EOC stands for Emergency Operations Center. Um, this is not a regular function of your typical local government. It is stood up in times of emergency or imminent disaster. So the same crew who has been um, working with the EOC for five, 520 days is the same crew that responds when there's a threat of a tsunami. Um, so the, the people in the EOC are not public health experts and they're actually volunteers who are um, working typically for the Kodiak Island Borough or the city of Kodiak governments. Our salaries are paid by those organizations. There's not special funding, uh, particularly at this time, to pay for our time spent working on this pandemic. Um, just to clarify, you know, you asked about FEMA funds. Um, there was some CARES Act money that did help pay for our time, that money has been spent primarily on supplies and um, equipping the community for you know, larger concerns, such as the need for overflow hospital capacity or morgue capacity, um, and primarily for uh, information services to the public. So right now, in the Emergency Operations Center, the only people who are actively staffing are the emergency services director and the two public information officers. 
So um, when when people refer to what is the EOC doing or why aren't we changing or why aren't we, re we requiring masks or changing the risk level, it really is something that we want to move towards public you know, personal responsibility. Early on in the pandemic, businesses were encouraged to develop mitigation plans so that they had an idea of how they wanted to keep their employees and their customers safe and um, develop precautions against the spread of the virus from and to their businesses. Um, we've messaged to the public how to keep themselves um, safer by instituting certain precautions such as mask wearing. And now that we've all those pieces should be in place. And so we really don't want to issue government mandates. We want to support the business community and the residents in carrying out those mitigation measures on their own um, in a manner that works best for them. So we really want to move away from you know, government mandates. We certainly encourage and support um, in, you know, self-enforcement of those precautions. Okay. Well, I very much appreciate that context. Well, we've reached the top of the hour here. I'd like to thank you all very, very much for for coming on. And I do appreciate all the work that you guys do to, to get this information out to the public. Thank you, Don. Thank you both. And, and uh, likewise, back to you again for keeping the public informed. Um, our goal here at DOC, like Megan says, with PIO and myself is is right now putting information out and keep the community informed with our reader boards we're having our active case counts and and uh our our mass mailing of our uh daily releases and and the hospital giving us the current status uh at providence um providing the information and hopefully the public will take those uh precautions and heed the warning well, this has been another episode of KMXT 100.1 FM's The Lowdown. As always, for listener questions, you can email us at lowdown, that's L-O-W-D-O-W-N, at kmxt.org, or reach us at 486-3181. And thank you all so much. Thanks for listening to the KMXT Lowdown. 